We're continuing our studies in 1 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to commence reading from verse 9. So you want to get your Bibles or your phones or your tablets or whatever it is you use. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And God will bless the reading of his holy word. Amen. Be seated. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much, Kenny. It's great to be together uh, today. And please do keep your Bibles or your tablets or whatever you're looking at open at that, that, passion, uh, that portion we read. One of the things I found so helpful in helping me with uh, our study of uh, 1 Peter was to get the truth of that book out of the narrow columns that appears in, in our Bibles and uh, I'm not going to open this out completely, but this extends to 10 A4 pages of, uh, of typing that gives you a clause, not even a full verse per line, a clause per line that opens it up for me. And so when I've got this out, one of the reasons I need a big desk is because this 10-sheet thing is often open, and I'm standing over it in the way that perhaps... Uh, the ancient mariners used to stand over their charts on the boat or the builder would stand over the architect's plans. And I found it so helpful to see the whole five chapters laid out like that. Now, you can only do it for a five-chapter book. If you were preaching through Jeremiah, you would go, you, I'd need to take up the whole floor space here. And that, even for the cleaning team, with their help, that probably wouldn't be terribly practical. But it's really useful for me to get an overview. And maybe it's a thing you want to think about doing. You can look at mine anytime. Actually, the first chapter fell off this morning because it's been so well used. But I'm going to tape it back on this week. And it just gives us an idea that week by week, we're not just looking at a few phrases or a few verses. We're actually seeing something that's part of a whole. And we're seeing a whole message that is being written. Uh, it really helped me to see the structure of this letter, that it's not just random thoughts that Peter was jotting down. In his first major section that you'll be glad to know he's now completed, chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 10, he really focused on what the Lord has done for his people in, in bringing us to new life, in giving us new life by the word, by the gospel, through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead. And then we saw how that new relationship with the Lord brings us into a new relationship with each other. And we've spent a few weeks thinking to, together about the nature of church. So we have been thinking together about the power of God's word as he has been, as he's helped us to be, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. And that, that is such a reality for church life. It's such a reality of all life. I think it was C.S. Lewis who very helpfully made the point that Christians aren't just nice people. I hope we are. Uh, we should be. But we're not 
just fundamentally nice people. We're new people. That's the thing. We're made new. We're born again. And so what people might confuse with niceness is actually newness. It's not a natural thing. It's a supernatural thing. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And that's what we've been kind of looking at for the last uh, number of Sundays. Today we come to a major new section in Peter's letter as he shifts his attention to how all this truth about the gospel and the church that we've seen affects our lives. We move now into a section on having seen what it is we believe to how it is we ought to behave. Peter is going to help us see the implications of the gospel for our day-to-day lives. He's going to show us that in our civic relationships, how we relate to government locally and nationally. He's going to show us that in terms of our working relationships, what it's like to be an employee of an employer. He's going to show us this in family relationships, how the husband and wife relate to one another. And then there's a kind of catch-all at the end of that section in chapter 3. And all the way through this, as Peter deals with these different practical environments that you and I find ourselves in every, every day in normal life, as he brings the light of the gospel to bear and helps us to see what this new life looks like in all these complex environments, he keeps referring us back to the unjust suffering of the Lord Jesus. You're going to see that as another feature. He's already begun to do that in chapter 1, and he'll certainly do that through 2, 3, 4, and 5. The unjust suffering of the Lord Jesus as the pattern for our lives as we follow in his steps as our uh, series title is. So Peter is absolutely realistic, isn't he, about how tough life can be But he also shows us this wonderful joy of the Christian life, what the Lord achieves through lives lived to his glory. So this morning we're going to turn to verse 11 and 12 of chapter 2, and we're going to see how Peter begins to help us work out how to live among the Gentiles, among the pagans who have no knowledge of the Lord Jesus. But as we'll see, he starts much closer to home than that. So I want us to notice three things this morning. First of all, how relational Peter is. Have a look at this, how relational Peter is. Uh, Have a look there at verse 11. Beloved, or dear friends, dearly beloved friends. And then he goes on, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain. And we'll come to the second half of that verse in a moment. We're going to get to the nub of that. But notice how he addresses these people. Now, well into the letter, he's not, this is not the first line This is the start of the second section, and he takes the opportunity to address them as his dearly beloved friends. This section runs from chapter 2, verse 11, to chapter 4, verse 11, and the final section then, chapter 4, verse 12, it also begins, beloved, or dearly beloved friends, same word. And the point is how relational Peter is. These, These folks to whom he wrote, they mattered deeply to Peter. He loved them, and we've already seen how in chapter 1, verse 22, he had called them to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And he reminds us in this verse we're looking at this morning that it's all the more necessary for us as brothers and sisters in Christ in the local church, in this local assembly of God's people, so important for us to love one another like that, to care for each other practically and helpfully like that, all the more important that we would band together because like Peter's first readers, we are also sojourners, foreigners, 
exiles in this world. Peter's readers didn't belong where they were, but they did belong somewhere else. They weren't stateless. No matter where they lived in this world, no matter if they hadn't been scattered from their original homes, they wouldn't be properly at home anywhere in this world. They were on a journey, chapter 1, verse 4, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's true home for all the people of God. Heaven was being kept for them. They were being kept for heaven. But now, as we saw in chapter 1, until that day when we are with the Lord, they were going to have to suffer grief and all kinds of various trials and hassles. And part of the trials and hassles they would face was that miserable feeling of not quite fitting in. That's why it was so important for him to be relational. You're foreigners, but you've got friends. You've got family. You're exiles in this world, but you do belong to a community that loves you. Beloved. And that's why it's so important in a world where we don't necessarily feel that we fit in. It's so important that everyone who belongs to the Lord Jesus feels that they fit in here among his people. If you are part and parcel of this church family, it's so desperately important that you feel and are made to feel precious and valued and that you fit in. You're one of the living stones that the Lord Jesus has shaped and you're in the right place and you're here at the right time and you have an essential function, but you fit and you're loved and you're cherished. It's not just a nice thing that we're a warm, loving church. It's an essential thing to our survival individually and corporately. So Peter loved them they loved the Lord, chapter 1, verse 8, and they were learning to act in that sincere brotherly love that they'd found in the new life in Christ. And vital though these relationships are, you can't love like that people you don't know. You can't love sufficiently. You can't have that kind of sense of belonging and helping one another with people you don't know. And that's why all the little things we do to try and help us get to know each other better are so important. That's why, for example, growth groups are such a help to us because we can't possibly get to know in this kind of level of detail everybody in the church family here this morning. Maybe through time we, you might be able to do that. But we, we don't want to wait eventually for that to happen. And our growth groups are a great place way to be in a smaller group and to get to know that smaller group and to be known by that smaller group so that we can experience this kind of important relational aspect of the Christian life. So I warmly encourage you, if you haven't yet managed along to a growth group, why not speak to Hugh McClellan today or one of the elders and we'll be delighted to help you into one. And there are other initiatives that we're in the process of developing uh, as a, a a, a, a church family to help us get to know one another so that we can love one another earnestly, love one another sincerely from the heart. So here's the first thing, how relational Peter is. He loves them. He urges them on. He wants them to love one another. They matter to him because they matter to God and he is invested in their well-being. Second thing to notice this morning, not only how relational Peter is, but notice how pastoral Peter is. Verse 11, still, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, 
which wage war against your soul. Oh, this is quite strong stuff now, isn't it? Uh, maybe we preferred him when he was just being lovey-dovey and, rela- and relational, but no, this is him now being pastoral. Peter takes seriously the commissioning he received from the Lord Jesus after Peter had denied the Lord. Do you remember how Jesus met them one morning and had breakfast on the beach with his disciples? And then he and Peter had a talk, and Peter, who denied the Lord Jesus three times, found that three times Peter, uh, Jesus asked Peter if Peter loved Jesus. And three times Peter confirmed that he did love him. And each time Jesus gave him a pastoral commission, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, shepherd my flock, in other words, feed my sheep. And Peter never forgot that. And that's why you, you, you find there is a warmth to this letter. He is so pastoral. We, we saw last week, didn't we, that every believer is a priest, so we don't need any special priestly role nowadays. And Peter doesn't take on a priestly role. Even though he is an apostle of Christ, he doesn't take on a priestly role, but he has the responsibility to shepherd the flock of God as an under-shepherd. Jesus is the great shepherd. He's the good shepherd. He is the ultimate foundation stone of the church. But he raises up and the church identifies those who are under-shepherds, the elders. And when you look, just glance ahead for a moment to chapter 5, just so that I can show you how seriously he takes this responsibility. Chapter 5, verse 1, he says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge. You're not a lion tamer going out with a whip. And what was the other thing? A chair, was it a whip and a chair they had? You're not, you're not like that, he says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. That's what he's doing here. That's what the elders at HBC want to do. We want to be exactly like that. Will you pray for us as elders? that we would do that. Will you pray for us as we meet tomorrow, uh, as we gather to pray and to talk and to plan? And that's what Peter is doing here. He's being pastoral in verses 11 to 12. And in the whole letter, he's being a shepherd to the flock. He's feeding them the word. He's leading them, but he's protecting them. And in this case, his readers need protection from what Peter calls their own passions. But, but beloved, I, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, strangers in this world, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. He's very direct in his approach. He's unmistakably clear. He's prepared to call a spade a spade. He's prepared even to risk offense. That they, might they be offended that they, he thinks they're capable of these kind of passions of the flesh that would wage war against their soul. Yeah, he's perfectly clear that they are because he knows that he is. So he's prepared to be clear, but this is the loving shepherding of the flock. There is an urgency here because there is so much at stake. Can you imagine how you would feel if you knew that you had loved ones on board some of those ships that were sailing past the Yemeni coast into the Red Sea, knowing that the Houthi rebels were likely to attack 
these vessels, knowing that that war was likely to be waged on these ships where you had loved ones, how anxious you would be until they were safely through that part of the coastline. But in this case, the attack is coming, notice, not from the outside. It will come in chapter, uh, in verse 12. We'll see in a moment there is an external aspect to it. But he begins with this internal issue. It's as though the people on these ships were launching drone attacks against their own vessels. And so he's saying to them in verse 11, I urge you to abstain from the passions of of your own flesh that wage war against your own souls. Don't launch an attack on your own soul is what he's saying pastorally. Now that word abstain, I, I think probably we mostly use it nowadays when we're casting a vote. And it's very timely, isn't it? We've got a, a ballot underway, as Kenny reminded us this morning. It closes on Wednesday at 7 p.m. and then it will be counted and we'll, we'll hear the result of that. But you can either cast your vote in favor of the proposal or against the proposal or, t- or you can abstain. You can decide not to act at all. And that would mean that we're not able to make a clear decision for or against. But that's not what Peter is saying when he says abstain from the passions of your flesh. He's not saying abstain in the sense, I'm not sure if this is going to be good for me or bad for me, but I'll just leave it. It's the very opposite. It's a clear decision to cease from engagement with the passions of the flesh. So that's abstain. Now let's get to this phrase, the passions of the flesh, because it does sound very prudish, doesn't it? We might say it sounds very Victorian. I don't know why we have that view of the Victorians because they lived a pretty riotous life, actually, eh, eh, under it all, under that veneer of respectability. There was chaos as exactly as you would expect. But this does sound very prudish when we read that we're to abstain from the passions of the flesh. It immediately conjures up this idea that the that, that, the Christian Bible and that Christian people in general have a very low view of the flesh and a very low view of passions and particularly of things like sex. And we can't even say the word without being slightly embarrassed by it. It conjures up all of that idea, but that's not what's going on here. It may sound as though Peter, as he writes, is against everything our flesh desires like food and drink and warmth and cool and bodily contact and excitement and relaxation and solitude and sexual satisfaction and rest and hard effort and attractive sights and wonderful sounds and delightful smells and delicious food and all these things. It may sound as though Peter is against these things. But of course, as we saw yesterday, at Messy Church, the Lord is the designer and maker of everything. And he has given us the context in which to enjoy all these blessings. So Peter, let's be crystal clear, Peter, a no Bible writer, is against the flesh, as though there is something inherently evil about human flesh. And There is nothing actually inherently evil about proper appetites and passions. What he is warning of is the pursuit of these passions in ways that war against our souls. Your soul is the very core of your being. It's the real you. So this is very significant warfare that Peter is speaking about here. He isn't, uh, isn't, isn't it striking that 
if we don't get these passions under control, we might be responsible through neglect for unimaginable and potentially eternal damage even to our souls. So this is really important this morning. This verse is really key. And as I was thinking about this all week and and, and working on the text and trying to see it in the context of the rest of the book, I was trying to work out what exactly has Peter already said that will help us understand what he's saying here in verse 11 or what is he about to say that will help us understand what he's saying here in verse 11 because it's so easy isn't it for me to use as a preacher uh, a phrase like abstain from the passions of the flesh and I might shout it a couple of times and consider that I've now applied that to our hearts that's not really applying it is it and I think we can see how these passions might wage war on us when we remember what Peter has just told us freshly about the new identity we have in Christ and the new purpose we have in Christ. And it was great that Kenny read from verse 9. Go back up to verse 9 with me. He's saying to these people who he's urging to abstain from the passions of the flesh, he's saying to them, you're a chosen race, which is a race made up of people from every tongue and tribe and nation who are going to be around the throne praising God forever. You're a chosen race, you're a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation, you're a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's who we are, there's what we are to do. Verse 10, once you were not a people, you had that, you had no cohesive identity, now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So, The point is, in the flow of this section, by the gospel of his son, God has done something staggering in the lives of those who have been born again into this new life. Peter's readers and all of us who belong to the Lord Jesus this morning have been called out of darkness, out of moral and spiritual darkness where we couldn't see the reality, into this marvelous light And Peter is therefore urging us in verse 11 not to be drawn back into that darkness. So you're in the light if you're a Christian. You've been brought out of the darkness. You're in the light to revel in the excellencies of our Savior, to grow up in your salvation. But that experience that I've just described there is jeopardized By how you feel. By other passions. So, I mean, verse 9 is a passion verse. Proclaiming the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's a verse about your new passion, which is the Lord Jesus. And all he's done for you. But that can be jeopardized by how and what you feel as other passions begin to Come awake in your life as you, for example, scroll through your phone or TV channel hop late at night or click certain sites on your PC or your device or turn to certain substances or develop certain fantasies or give way to your anger or your laziness or your greed 
as well as lusts. It's much broader than just sexual sin. I think passions of the flesh, we automatically think it's sexual sin. It certainly includes that. It certainly includes pornography. It certainly includes illicit relationships. It includes all of these things, an unhealthy fantasy life. Definitely, but it's much more than that. It is also greed and laziness and anger and all the rest of it. They're passions that overwhelm us. Now, the point is, if you're born again, God has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. But that darkness from which we were called, that darkness was home for so long for us. It feels so familiar. And the way these passions in verse 11, the way they they wage war against our souls is as they come along, as they, as they pop into our minds, as they arise in our hearts, however it happens, by our senses, as we were thinking about earlier, as that happens, the way they attack our souls is this. They promise us better solutions and deeper satisfaction than the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's how these passions wage war against your soul. And that's how you know that they are negative and that to pursue them would be a dangerous thing. That's when these passions become a problem. The light into which God calls his people enables us to see things as they really are. We've seen the excellencies of God our Savior. We've just come through chapter 1 and into the middle of chapter 2. We've seen his planning from eternity past. We've seen his power at work. We've seen his patience as he took, frankly, the worst thing that his creatures could do against him and the brutal desecration and murder of his son and made it the best thing he could do for us that we could be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We have seen his excellencies and we've only scratched the surface. His excellencies are his praiseworthiness, his boastworthiness, his infinite superiority in every way, his unique capacity to satisfy all the longings of our bodies and souls. And our task, verse 9, is to proclaim these excellencies as we revel in them ourselves. And what Peter is warning us about here, what he's flashing up in terms of a warning, is that the way our fleshly passions make war to wound our souls is by taking the shine off the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness. These passions arise in our life and they may be be innocent in themselves, but they begin to war against our souls when they make God look dull by comparison. And make themselves, as our natural passions, look so liberating and so exciting and so satisfying. And like like the mugs we are, speak for myself, we tend to keep falling for that lie. And though our passions of the flesh never deliver the excellencies they promise in our sinful brokenness we keep thinking they might 
and we keep thinking that it's worth taking a chance that they might this time. I found that an important link to establish. I wonder, can you see that link this morning? Can we understand how our passions declare war on us? Can you see now how they launch wave after wave of assault on our souls? This is primarily how they do it. We've got this new passion, the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And these earthly passions arise and they want to compete with that new passion we have for the Lord and what he's done. And they threaten or they attempt to make him look a bit of an also-ran. And they say to us, well, yeah, that's good that you've got God there. He can clean up the mess in a minute, but come this way and there will be, instead of the effort of a Christian life, instead of trying to love people earnestly, instead of trying to um, get rid of all the slander and envy and deceit and hypocrisy in chapter 2 verse 1, instead of all that effort, I'm going to give you instant satisfaction in whatever it may be. Just lose your rag. Just go back to sleep. Just... uh, have that extra fry-up item or whatever it may be or click on that link. Look at that image. Fantasize about that person. Whatever it may be. So why don't we ask the Lord as we look at this verse 11, it's very pastoral, it's very personal, Why don't we ask the Lord to help us to set a mental air raid siren, to install a mental air raid siren. Do you remember the old, some of you of course remember it, some of you of course have never heard of such a thing as an air raid siren, but when during the war the bombers were coming over or the the planes were coming over, there would be a sound and in some towns you can still see the old siren. I think maybe in Les Mahigo you can still see the siren, you can ask the big outs if that's right. I don't know if you can see it in, in Hamilton, but someone would go up and wind up the siren. It would make this awful roar, quite an alarming thing, I think, if you experienced it in reality. But it was a warning to say we're under attack. Now, can we ask the Lord to help us install an air raid or a soul raid siren? To help us be aware and to hear the alarm being raised when something that begins to play in our minds, something that becomes a bit of a longing, something that becomes a bit of an alternative life that we build, that when we're sitting at the lights at Peacock Cross or Cadzo Street or wherever we are, and we've got a few seconds just waiting for it to go to red or halfway up Straven Road, I reckon you've got about 25 minutes to sit there and wait for them to turn green. When you're sitting there and your mind's idle, what does your mind go to? What are the things? What are the longings? What are the passions of the flesh? Ask the Lord to give you an air raid siren going off in your heart and mind. That when these longings, these passions come into play and we begin to see that they are actually making the Lord Jesus look dull and distant... And they're offering us something much more comprehensive, much more satisfying, and instant gratification. We'll know about it. 
and we'll suddenly realize that they're trying to make the excellencies of our Savior look less beautiful, less attractive, less satisfying, less wonderful than the immediate gratification of fleshly passions. I think that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray about that for myself and encourage you to pray about that for yourself and to think this through and see how this works in practice. So we've seen how relational Peter is, how pastoral he is. Thirdly this morning, how evangelical he is. Now what do I mean by that? That's almost a, that's almost a phrase nowadays that's, that's used by pundits and politicians. They'll say about somebody being positively evangelical and they just mean they're a bit of a nutcase about something. So it's interesting how that word has a negative connotation. But in the best sense, Peter is very evangelical here. We've already seen how the new status we have in verse 9 results in us proclaiming the superior excellencies of our Savior so that others hear of him. That's what verse 9 is about. And that's exactly the emphasis Peter draws out again now in verse 12. Have a look at it with me. Verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles or the the pagans honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Let's just, it's it's relatively straightforward. Let's just clear the ground here. The Gentiles, as I've said, are the the pagans. They are the non-Jews. They are those who have no knowledge of or interest in the living God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. It's exactly where we live. It's exactly Scotland. It's exactly Western Europe and most of the world. And Peter says that when we live out our new lives that we have in Christ, these lives show themselves to be honourable. That's a slight, that word honourable maybe has a slightly stuffy connotation for us as though we would try to present ourselves as honourable people. That's not what Peter is saying. He's talking about lives that are compellingly attractive. Even to those who reject the Lord. Even to those who reject his people. They see something in your life that although they may not have a kind word for you and they may have some cruel words that they speak against you, Nonetheless, they see something in your life that they cannot argue with. And they know it's not you. Now, Peter's going to return to the negative reaction to believers of the culture around us. But we can see how embattled believers are, even from these two verses. Internally, we have the passions that war against us. And externally, in verse 12, we face people who speak against us. Do you see that phrase? Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable so that when they speak against you as evildoers. Now you might struggle to say, well that doesn't really apply in our culture. It may have then, it does in other parts of the world, but maybe not so much here. People just kind of ignore us, but they don't really say that we're evildoers. Well, that's changing. Let me give you an example of that. One very striking example. In a few weeks' time, God willing, we're going to come to chapter 3, verse 1. And we're going to read this. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. We're going to read that. I've just read it there. But we're going to come to it in context and see what it says. But even to read that nowadays publicly. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. We don't need to go beyond that line into the rest of chapter, uh, verse 1 of chapter 3. 
to know that to publicly engage with this, to believe, to align ourselves with God's design for marriage is to draw the opprobrium and the hostility of our culture. If you preach that verse, those who don't know the Lord will hear it and they will definitely, many of them will le- will look at a line like that in the Bible and say, that is evil. That is the patriarchy. That is oppressive. That is dragging us back into the dark ages. That is part of everything that's wrong with the world. And who knows, you might even feel it in your own heart as you think about chapter 3, verse 1, when we come to it. Now, we have a lot of work to do when we get to it. And there's a lot of comfort to be found, and there's a lot of balance in the Bible about the roles of husbands and wives, and God holds both accountable. And we'll see that. But I'm just giving you an example of one context that we're about to come to in this book where the world reacts, and it doesn't just say, I don't believe that. It reacts with a sense of not only are you saying weird things, you're saying evil things. What you stand for is evil. Your view of the marriage relationship is evil. Your view of the family is evil. Your view of human sexuality is evil. You ought not to live like that. You ought not to speak like that. So believers being slandered as evil was a a live issue for people, Peter's readers, and it is for us today. It's a live issue for us. But do you notice that Peter isn't just interested in how we protect ourselves from the pagan world? He's interested in how we in, invade the pagan world with the beautiful truth and light of the gospel. This is the first here in verse 12 of a series of situations where he encourages us to see the power of how we live alongside what we say, how we live alongside what we say. The combination of truth from our lips and proof from our lives. That is very powerful and very persuasive. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, among the pagans who don't know the Lord. Keep it honorable. Help help them to see how compellingly beautiful the excellencies of your Savior are so that when, not if, when they speak against you as evildoers, even then, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. That's a very fine, strange final phrase, isn't it? What's he talking about there? Well, he might be talking about what Kenny talked about at, right at the beginning of our meeting this morning when he wonderfully reminded us of the day when the Lord Jesus will come back, that day of his return. He's already been once. He's visited us once. He will come again in power and glory. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. So God is going to be glorified on that day of visitation. That's 100% true. Might be that. Or it may be that Peter is using the picture of God visiting the Gentiles that he heard James use in Acts chapter 15. Do you remember Peter had been peckish one day? He was up on the roof having uh, uh, thinking and praying and he got a bit hungry and, and he asked for something to eat and he fell asleep and had a vision that he, he all kinds of food being brought to him and he was arguing and saying I can't eat that I'm a, I'm a, I, I only eat what's clean I only eat according to the Jewish frameworks and the Lord told him don't call anything impure that God has made pure and then he goes to the home of Cornelius Gentile people and It's a hard thing for him to cross that threshold, but he does. He goes in among the Gentiles and he begins to articulate the gospel to them. Now, in Acts 15, verse 12, you don't have to turn to it, but just listen to this. This had all been discussed. 
And we read in verse 12, all the assembly fell silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles, among the pagans. And after they'd finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, meaning Peter, Simon Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. To call from among the Gentile nations, the rest of the world, you and me, to call from them a people for his name. God had moved in power. And James says that was God visiting the Gentiles. It was a day of visitation. When the truth of the gospel broke out into the Gentile world, when they began to realize this glorious news of a new life in Christ, of sins forgiven, of peace with God, of power to live for him now by the Holy Spirit within, was for them as well as for the Jews who were coming to faith in their Messiah. It's for the whole world. And God visited the Gentiles by the word and deeds of his people as they proclaimed by lip and life his excellency. So Peter is clear that we can expect hostility from the culture. But he remembers how God worked through the rejection of his son to bring salvation to the world and he's confident that God is still doing the same. So that, verse 12, when they speak against you as evildoers, when they reject you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. They might even find that that would be the means by which God will visit them in the community, in the office, in the neighborhood, at the bowling alley, in the restaurant, wherever, when they see lives that have been so gloriously impacted by the gospel. Isn't that an excellent balance for us to develop? For us to be a church family who are orientated to be built up pastorally in the flock, and to be living out the gospel evangelistically in the world. How relational Peter was, how pastoral he was, how evangelical he was. God can use even that rejection as the backdrop against which the glories of the light of the gospel may shine. Let's pray about that, shall we, as we close. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for these two verses and all they contain and ask for the help now of your Holy Spirit not to let this be stolen away from us but for it to come afresh consistently into our lives and for us to get some time this afternoon to work out what does it mean now to respond positively to this. Our God, we pray that you would help us to abstain from these passions of the flesh that wage war against our soul, that make the excellencies of the one who called us from darkness into light look pretty dull by comparison. Would you make us aware of that? Would you set off that siren in our heads? Whenever something that is fleshly threatens that supreme place that belongs to the Lord Jesus, when anything arises in our lives that makes us think it would be more satisfying than him, would you please help us to be aware of it and to abstain, actively to cease from engagement? Would you help us to be the beloved for one another, to live in these good, strong relationships? Would you help us to live 
beautiful lives as a testimony to your excellencies so that even when we're rejected, our colleagues, our loved ones, our neighbors, our friends may see you at work in our lives and may bring you glory because by that you visit them and call them to your salvation. Help us in this, our God, we pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Let's stand and sing together, O church, arise and put your armor on. What a good way to finish this part as we go to the Lord's table.